When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. Hey everyone, this will be the last episode of the season. I'll be going out of town for work and won't be able to produce any new episodes until after September. Salamat for understanding, and I hope you enjoy. Well, my name's Adam Bly, I'm 51 years old, I'm living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, working for the Pittsburgh Catholic Diocese. Adam trains exorcists for a living. I was contacted by his publicist a couple months ago to see if I was interested in having him on the podcast. As you may remember from season one of the show, possession was my first true supernatural fear. So the opportunity to speak with someone who deals with possession on a regular basis was exciting. But the flip side of the coin of excitement was nervousness. I paused before I responded to her. I found my anxious brain predicting various ways that my conversation with Adam would go. I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. What if I accidentally said something to offend him? What if he made me feel scared or guilty for making my living in the paranormal? What if I'd be opening him up to ridicule from listeners who may not agree with what he said? I was absolutely overthinking everything, classic me. And once I settled my thoughts... I reminded myself that I am here to learn, and I set up a time to meet with Adam. In today's episode, Adam shares his journey from mental health specialist to exorcist trainer, discusses how demonic possession happens, what exorcisms are like, what demons are and what they do, and how one becomes an exorcist. And now, here's Adam. I've been involved in, as a lay person, not as a priest, been involved in the exorcism ministry for about 15 years. And at this point, I help here locally in our diocese, but I also have been helping to train priests at national conferences and going in and training at like clergy days and convocations for about a decade. So yeah, um, for some reason, God has got me really involved in the world of exorcism. 
how I got into it is something everybody always wonders, and it is strange because I'm a lay person and only a priest can do exorcisms uh, with permission from their bishop. So kind of the Cliff's Notes version is I was in graduate school studying brainwave data in order to infer structure and function of the brain as part of a PhD program in clinical psychology. And I was curious after studying hypnosis for my master's whether these strange experiences that people had were just an artifact of the brain because we had seen in the lab that through hypnosis, if you're hypnotizable, and there's no way to know if you are or you're not, you just have to try it. And I don't advise trying it at this point, but if you're hypnotizable, you can induce hallucinations. You can make somebody hear a ghost if they're very hypnotizable, hear a disembodied voice that isn't there. You can put one bottle of Pepsi on the table and make them see two, and they'll swear up and down that there's two bottles of Pepsi on the table. So we knew that the brain can produce false experiences that to the person are completely real. And the paranormal craze was just starting uh, at that time. This is when like the TV show Ghost Hunters was just coming out. And so I was curious whether any of this was real or meaning a genuine spiritual thing, or if it was all just mental illness, misunderstanding, and people get themselves worked up. And so I started going out and looking at some places and cases where people claimed that these strange things were happening and, and seeing these people for myself because I was trained in diagnosing mental illness. I had seen quite a bit of it in the training clinic. I had done some work in the state prisons here uh, as an intern and seen a lot of severe mental illness there. So I felt somewhat equipped to go out and try to figure that out. And I pretty quickly bumped into a possessed person where the psychology and neuroscience that I'd been studying didn't account for what I was seeing. There was a house case that was seemed like, looking back on it now, I, I know it was a demonic infestation. It was a violent haunting. People were being physically hurt, both the main person that seemed to be the target of it and her boyfriend uh, had both been physically hurt. And there was pictures of the bruises and the scratches. And I don't mean just like what you see in paranormal things today where like somebody has a little scratch on their arm and they're freaking out. I mean like thrown down the stairs and seriously damaged or choked until their throat is all bruised up. Bad stuff and worse that I'm not going to talk about. So this person wanted to know if the thing that seemed to be whispering into their ear every time they would be going to sleep at night only in this house was something spiritual or just a bad dream and they could never remember what it said and so they asked me if i would hypnotize them to try to remember what it was saying because it seemed to be saying maybe the same thing every night but they could never remember when they woke up um so after a lot of debate and calling around to some friends i did a you know decided to try hypnosis in that situation and very quickly not getting very far into the hypnotic induction at all a different voice came out of the person and said what do you think you're doing she's ours you know you're not going to hypnotize her and when i tried to do kind of the reverse of the hypnotic induction what you would typically do to bring somebody out of a hypnotic trance which we hadn't even gotten into in the first place they just laughed and said that's not going to work on us and different voices came out of her over time um, they seem to know things they shouldn't be able to know. And this was all in the context of, of a house where you would see disembodied black shadows moving around. And actually reporters 
from the city newspaper had been at this house because it was so notoriously haunted previously and had been scared out of the house and had taken pictures of disembodied black shadows that were in the fully lit bright kitchen. So yeah, between the context of the haunting, the things these things were saying and the fact that she was completely sane during the day, I'd seen no hint of mental illness in her, which believe me, if you've been around somebody as troubled as to have multiple personalities, you would pick up on the fact that they're traumatized and have mental illness. It's not something that you're, unfortunately, you know, just completely normal walking around, or at least not to the eyes of somebody who's, you know, trained in mental illness. So it didn't add up. So in the end of that situation, I, I was pretty sure that it was a genuine spiritual phenomenon, that it wasn't mental illness, at least in the case of this person and this house, because I had seen the photos, I had talked with them. I had met a lot of liars in prison, and it was my job to do parole evaluations and deal with manipulators and liars professionally. I was confident they weren't knowingly lying to me, that they had really been hurt by something. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of the, the short version of it. It's hard to say how common it is because the only people that we learn of are the people that are asking for help. So there could be a thousand people out there for everyone that comes for help, but because we never hear from them, we don't know. I can tell you that in any given year, typically there's four or five possession cases that genuine possession cases that come to the diocese and ask for help and they turn out to be real. And that's in like every major city in the country. It happens in rural areas too. But just to give you a ballpark, four to five new cases a year, and it's not like in the movies where it's a 10-minute prayer and it's over. It's six months to two years is on average. Six months to two years of weekly sessions is kind of the average for somebody to be completely free. So if there are four to five legitimate possession cases a year, how are they happening? There's no like genetic trait or cultural trait or anything like that that makes you more susceptible. It's all about forming a relationship with these spirits. So any human being, it's an act of the will, your choice to play around with these spirits and thereby invite them into your life. So anybody through an act of the will can invite these problems into their life. And essentially what you're doing is you're asking that spirit either for comfort, information, or power in some form. So you know, black magic is essentially that it's seeking power for yourself. So the magician's perspective is my will be done. I want the money. I want the power. I want the girl. I want the car, whatever it is. It's about me, me, me. And I do this ritual and wiggle my fingers and say these words. And then magically I get what I want. And that's kind of the, the magician's perspective is my will be done. The Christian perspective is thy will be done. It's a submission to God. And so at the core of most possession cases is some form of black magic because you've turned to that spirit, that created spirit that isn't God, and you're asking it to do you favors and guide your spiritual life. Either tell me what the afterlife is like. Tell me that my dead mother is somewhere and she's okay manifest for me here while I'm recording it so I can get hits on my YouTube channel. You're, you're cutting deals with these things. And 
it's, it's all violations of the first commandment from a Christian perspective. And the first commandment is put God first, love God with your whole being. And when you tell God, essentially what you're telling God, you're not saying it, but you are saying it. I don't trust you. I'm not going to wait on you. I want my answers from this other spirit right now on my terms. And, and essentially what I've come to, to realize over the years, after so many cases of paranormal investigators that ended up having problems, not necessarily being full-blown possessed, though some are, most of them end up with house cases or being oppressed, is I've realized over the years that really ghost hunting, which technically from a Christian perspective is forbidden as necromancy, is, is one of the things that causes a lot of these problems. So generally for full-blown possession, you're generally talking about hardcore witchcraft or Satanism. And I don't mean I bought a book at the mall witchcraft. I mean, like somebody who's really getting into ritualistic magic and, and calling up spirits and cutting deals with them. And same thing for Satanism, not the political Satanism that just does stunts and tries to make your parents upset, but, you know, real cutting deals with demons. So yeah, in our culture right now, I'd say it's more common and is becoming increasingly common because we no longer teach the, you know, millennia old cautionary tales that used to be baked into our culture. You know, it used to be that you don't play with Ouija boards and everybody just knows that, but now they're celebrated in a lot of places. And because everybody learns from their phones or their TVs or the movie screen, nobody learns from church anymore a lot of dangerous stuff is being normalized. And so as we become less religious as a culture, people have a, a need for spirituality. They have that itch, which I think is why the paranormal is so popular because it promises to give you spiritual experiences quickly and easily. And you can just go do this and get that answer. As many of you listening already know, a lot of these things Adam is talking about are things I do for a living. Talking to spirits, practicing witchcraft, running paranormal investigations. I told him that I was a paranormal investigator, and I do find it frustrating that most TV shows don't actually seem to help the people in need. So I asked him for some advice on how we can be more helpful on these cases. Okay, so the resolution's easy. It's prayer. We deal with human spirit hauntings on a regular basis, and it's really easy. And by deal with, I mean, we resolve it. We don't go there to record things or gather data. We'll talk with the family, talk with whoever's involved. Um, we don't set up equipment. We don't try to get manifestations. We, we have enough experience that through talking with the people, we know whether it sounds legit or not. And, and legit poor soul hauntings, you know, the just you get experience over the years. And so uh, you have souls in purgatory, which are people on their way to heaven. So they died and they weren't perfect. Most of us are not perfect when we die. And so they kind of have to go through a final purification before they can be with God. So those souls in purgatory, we sometimes call them poor souls. They can benefit from us praying for them. So a lot of these ghost hunting groups, they vaguely say we're here to help but they don't actually do anything. They come in and record stuff and say, yep, it's haunted. There we helped. And the people are like, well, yeah, we told you that. That's why we called you. And, and oftentimes, like we've had many cases where families have called the church after paranormal groups have come through, everything gets worse. 
and then they call the priest or, or call the church. So it's real simple. You just pray for the dead and you're praying for the remission. The technical way you know, to talk about it, you're praying for the remission of the temporal component of their sins. So basically their time and purification that's required for them to be purified completely can be sped up through the charitable act of a living person. And that can take any form you want. If you're, if you're Catholic, you can pray a rosary for them. If you're a Christian, you can pray 10 Our Fathers for them. I'm not saying that 10 Our Fathers is going to instantly make that soul's purgatory be done. It's, it's usually not. But substantial prayer usually will cause all the manifestations to stop. And then typically, we'll have a priest say masses for that soul in addition later. And I can tell you from dealing with many of these cases over the years that you go in and 45 minutes of prayer and it's done and it never comes back. So, you know, I think that's genuine helping, especially if there's been a murder or a suicide, you can kind of presume that they're in distress, there's a problem. And we go in and we pray, you know, prayers for that soul. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying like one, our father and you snap your fingers and say it's over. I'm talking substantial prayer and whatever God requires, and then it's done. So, so our approach is very different as opposed to trying to investigate it. And the other thing is we don't need to have certainty that there's a ghost there. You know, if it sounds like it, it sounds like a legit, typical, real case, you don't need to be sure that something's there. The prayer isn't wasted. So God will apply those prayers to some other soul if there isn't a poor soul there. So you don't have to, Prayers never wasted from a Christian perspective. So basically I'm saying, instead of all the ghost hunting, just pray for the dead. And you don't have to go in somebody's attic or basement to do that. You can pray for the dead every Wednesday night at five o'clock or whatever you want to do. Now, the paranormal investigator, when they say, give me a sign of your presence, say something into my recorder, they assume they're talking to a ghost usually, but a poor soul, that soul on its way to heaven that isn't purified yet, isn't going to talk to you on your recorder. If you were to say, do you need prayer? They might say yes, and that's it. They're not going to draw you into violating the first commandment and sinning because they're on their way to God. They're not going to draw you into sin. It doesn't make sense. And anything beyond, yes, I need prayer, is going to lead to your fascination. You're playing 20 questions with it. What's it like on the other side? Is my grandma there? Whatever it is, all of those things are violations of the first commandment. So when the paranormal investigator is playing around with something that seems to be manifesting, it's almost always a demon pretending to be something else. Because a holy angel isn't going to do that because a holy angel is not going to help you violate the first commandment. A poor soul on the way to heaven isn't going to do that. A saint in heaven isn't going to help you violate the first commandment and put yourself in mortal sin. The only thing that's left is the demon. Now, the poor soul can signal their need for prayer. And so there are cases, particularly where there's been murders or suicides, uh, where poor souls, and then also rectories, convents, monasteries, and churches are, are really common for these, where they may signal their presence without talking or saying too much, but there might be footsteps, there might be gentle knocking, there might be their picture falls off the wall at the anniversary of their death, something little. But the big difference is it's not destructive and it's not scary. 
So they're not trying to scare you or destroy things or break things. So your clues that you're not dealing with anything good is when it wants to have a long conversation and when it feels and starts acting really scary. That's Those are clues that you're dealing with something bad. In general, my advice, unfortunately, would be to avoid ghost hunting altogether because nine times out of ten, you're going to end up dealing with demons. And so many people that get into ghost hunting, eventually they have problems down the road and they get out of it. But I know lots of people think it's harmless because the TV shows make it seem harmless and they purposely don't show the consequences of doing this stuff. They don't show the effect on the people's lives. The, the celebrities on the TV shows, I know most of them. In their private lives, there, there's a lot of impact from this stuff. But Holly, that doesn't sell ratings. And so Hollywood sanitizes it and makes it seem like a harmless hobby. Um, but I can tell you from experience, I'm not just like a Bible thumper saying you shouldn't do it. I've been involved in this for a long time now, and I've seen a lot of train wrecks come out of ghost hunting. So I'm sorry that's a long answer, but... I'm used to dismissing my family's warnings about ghost hunting, but to hear these warnings from a man who has seen and experienced things I haven't, it definitely hits differently. When we return from the break... Adam talks about the process of becoming an exorcist, more details on demons and possession, and some of the scariest things he's witnessed. Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer, and podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every week. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel. And also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me. So do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. Before the break, Adam was discussing how most human hauntings can be solved with significant prayer, and that prayer could come from anybody. But that is not the case for demonic possessions. These cases require a highly trained exorcist, and the odds of being appointed as one are fairly low. You can't just do it because you want to do it. Your bishop has to appoint that priest. So number one, you have to be a priest. That's a whole 10-year process. And you have to be accepted. You can't just say, I want to be a priest. You're, you must train me. Um, and then after that, your bishop may or may not appoint you to be an exorcist, probably won't, because there's usually one, maybe two per diocese, usually one, and they'll be the exorcist for decades, and then a new one will be appointed. So the odds are not high that you're going to be appointed. Once you're appointed, typically you're an apprentice for a couple years. You'll go to some academic settings, training, conferences, 
Pope Leo XIII Institute is a training institute for exorcists. It's more of the academic piece, the classroom piece. There's quite a bit to be covered there, theology, studying old cases, um, just a bunch of stuff. And then most importantly, you're, you're going to need to sit in with uh, exorcists that are experienced and sit in on like a weekly basis for a couple years and see a whole bunch of different types of cases, different types of manifestations and demons and tricks and nonsense that they do, get a feel for it. And then once you've assisted a little bit and seen a whole lot for a few years, typically the bishop appoints them to be a full exorcist, not, not kind of an apprentice. And at that point, they start dealing with key cases on their own. Typically, the first five years of being an exorcist, you're still calling your friends frequently and asking for advice or, or checking in and saying, I just saw this today. That was new. What does that mean? But typically, after five years, you're kind of on your feet. Some people, the bishop may ask to do it, and they'll immediately say, I can't. I'm not the right person. Please don't make me. And they just won't even start. And there's various reasons for that. So that's one category of people. Another category is you'll never really know if you're cut out for it until you actually walk in the room and an exorcism is going on. So you can imagine you can be the armchair exorcist and say, well, if it was me, I would do this. Um, but you, you really don't know what it's like until you're actually in the room. And, you know, yeah, you just can't. There, it, it, I imagine it would kind of like being a cop or a soldier where a soldier would probably say you can't understand combat until you've done it. So I'm not equating it with combat, but it's kind of, that's a good analogy for it. Um, so some people come in and they sit in once for a little while and the demon turns to them and says something and gets under their skin and, and they just never come back. But honestly, that's rare because we're so careful about who we ask to get involved in the first place. So it's somebody that you already know well, or it's real clear God's calling them to that. You don't casually let people sit in on this stuff. It's not a spectator sport where somebody's like, you know, I just want to see it um, because then you're there for a selfish reason. And if you're there for selfish reasons, as opposed to try to pray for that person, I think there's less protection for you because you're there for selfish reasons. And so we don't want to be responsible for the harm that could come to that person if we let them do that. But, you know, no one person is doing all the training. So I might be helping with like the actual coaching in the actual exorcisms. And I might sometimes do lectures here or there. And then I have friends that are, you know, running like the Pope Leo Thirteenth Institute up in Chicago, where they're doing more structured full courses that like five or six different teachers are teaching at. And I might go up there and do a lecture once in a while. So it's not like there's one thing like, I don't know, like getting a college degree. You know, it's not like there's one route to do it. It kind of, it depends. If you're doing a, what's called a solemn exorcism of a person, you'd never, ever be alone. So there's always a team of people there. Generally, you have two, three, four women, adults that are mature, sitting in and praying the rosary or praying some type of prayer and also being observers, especially if a woman was the person you were praying for. In addition to that, you'd have contacts in the medical community and the psychological community because the church doesn't do exorcisms without first having the person evaluated medically and psychologically. 
to be sure that their complaints can't be explained by a mental or medical illness. And if the doctor says, yeah, this looks just like bipolar with psychotic symptoms, we don't endorse the idea that it's a demon and start praying over somebody because that could cause a lot of harm. Now the person's like, well, the church thinks I'm possessed, so I'm not going to take my medication. Um, so the church is very careful about finally concluding that a person's actually possessed. It's a very high bar. You really have to kind of prove it and you have to disprove that it's medical or psychological. Um, a lot of people are interested in demons because it's popularized and it's spooky and people make movies about it. But what demons are, are fallen angels. They're not bad people. Um, Hitler didn't become a demon. They're fallen angels that fell at the beginning of time. They were created by God. They were given free will. They could choose yes or no. And they were told what they were created for. And God said, will you do your job? And a third of them said no. And that third was cast out of heaven down to earth to roam here until the final judgment when they're going to receive their full punishment. And so that third that said no um, roams the earth, trying to take as many of us out as possible before they run out of time. So two thirds said yes to God, led by Michael, the archangel. And those are the what we would consider angels or holy angels specifically. The angels that fell are diminished and deformed, but they're still angels. They use their God-given gifts for the opposite. So an angel created to inspire chastity or self-control, if it fell, might become a demon of lust. So it's using its faculty, it's using its gifts, but it's using them for the reverse of what they were given for. And so you get these specialized creatures, and they're all good at inciting particular sins. It's never just one, so um, there's always a colony of them, but they're in a hierarchy. So uh, the nine choirs of angels, some fell from all choirs, so you basically have nine ranks of demons. So if you have a kind of middle management one, say rank five or six, it'll have a number under it in that hierarchy, if you think of the military organization. So the ones that are under it, when it's cast out, go with it. So you can cast out whole groups of them at a time but there's never just one unless it's the very end of the case and there's only one left. That's the only time there's going to be one in there. So yeah, it's always, it's always many, though it's not a big deal about how many it is. It really doesn't matter. It's all about when God wants the case to end. So if a possessed person always has multiple demons within them, where is the person's soul during this time? Does it leave the body? No, the soul doesn't leave the body. So the person's in there and they'll feel that they're helpless, kind of like, I don't know, imagine that you're in your basement and the basement door is closed and you can hear the conversation up in the living room, but they can't hear you and you can't interact with them. It's kind of like that. They'll often say that they're in a dark place and they can hear what's going on in the room, but they have no control over their body or their voice. That's typically what people experience. Or they just black out entirely and they wake up two hours later and say, what happened? You got to be very careful about assuming that just because somebody has some lost time, that it means that they're possessed because there's psychological things that are much more common than possession that can also account for that. So you want to be careful, assume, jumping to the conclusion, oh, it's a demon when you know you find out the person has had a serious drug history or 
um, they've had a trauma history and maybe they're dissociating, you know, or they're on a medicine that can cause memory loss, whatever it is, you want to rule out all the mundane things first. But that being said, in genuinely possessed people, yes, they do have episodes of lost time where suddenly they wake up and realize they're standing in the street 12 blocks from their house. Oh, and wait, it's Thursday. Last thing I knew it was Tuesday. And why am I wearing these different clothes? Things like that, um, where they have significant lost time, where the demons had taken over and were walking around in their body and the person was checked out. I know that demonic possession is usually sensationalized in entertainment, but even stripped away from the special effects and the atmospheric music, it still sounds pretty horrifying. I asked Adam if he ever got scared dealing with this on a regular basis. No, um, and it's not about being courageous or tough or anything like that. I've just always been a real mellow person and stuff doesn't really phase me anyway. I think God made me that way. And so, yeah, from the first time, just haven't been. With some of these creatures, I think it would be reasonable to be afraid or at least be startled by them because they do scary things, but they're just playing head games. Now, that being said, they are sincerely dangerous creatures, especially if you're messing with them and you're not doing it because God wants you to be doing that work. So we're not afraid of them. We, I go to exorcisms every week. You know, We deal with them all the time. It's a normal part of life now. But if somebody were to think they could pick up a book on exorcism and just because they feel their will is strong, they're going to go exercise this house or this person, um, then you're going to experience them as a, a very dangerous creature because you don't have kind of the protection of God that you're doing legitimate work for God. I asked Adam to share some of the scariest head games he'd ever witnessed. I mean... I don't know. I'll give you two examples. One is um, like we're talking by by moving our throats and our lips and pushing air in and out. I saw somebody just sitting without taking without breathing, just with their mouth hanging open and not moving at all. And a booming voice that came from all sides of the room simultaneously. So it was coming out of them. And it sounded like it sounded like the sound coming out of like a gorilla sized chest the deep resonant noise that didn't sound human. And it was also coming from all sides of the room at the same time. Um, that was pretty, pretty wild. You know, seeing a possessed person during an exorcism reach out towards, um, there was a, a screw screwed into the wall to, to hang a painting on in the room, on the far side of the room. And they, they were reaching out towards it. You know, they're like 15 feet away staring at it and it ripped out of the wall, flew across the room into their hand and um, they then used it as a weapon. So that was a little crazy. Um, most people wonder about levitation. I have not yet seen levitation. It's pretty rare. It's maybe one in 200 cases. And typically there's two forms of it that I have many friends that have seen it that I trust implicitly and I know them very well. And they don't like talk about it publicly. They're not trying to get attention. These You don't even know who these people are, the, the exorcists. I mean, um, there's kind of two versions. One is where typically the person's laying on the floor and they'll come up about six or 12 inches and start floating and sliding around the room, usually in a serpentine way, but nothing's touching the floor. Like you can get down and look and there's, there's a gap. And the other one is they just go straight up. 
So 10, 15 feet up in the air, just like, I don't know, like something out of the movies. And yeah, sometimes fly around, sometimes float up and grab onto the, if, if they're in a church and there's beams or whatnot, you know, grab onto those. But I've, I have yet to see levitation. So yeah, I mean, you know, making things fly around the room is pretty interesting. Speaking without moving your lips or your larynx or, or taking a breath is, is pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's all parlor tricks though. It's all just designed to, to scare you and distract because the demon's gonna lose and it knows it's gonna lose. And so its best bet is to freak the humans out so they don't finish the prayers. Once the demons are cast out of the victim, can they become possessed again? We see people that backslide all the time. So one will be cast out, they'll come back the next week and the same one's there again. And it'll be laughing and saying, you know, they gave in to me. You know, they did what I told them to do and, and now I'm back in. And now you kind of start over with that one. So it's all about human free will. Um, these creatures aren't destroyed because they're exercised. And they're, they're trying to win and do the job that Satan appointed them to do. And so if they get a shot to get back in, they, yeah, I mean, they're trying to do what they've been assigned to do. So if the person gives in, and that's part of the struggle, is that it's a multi-month, sometimes multi-year process. And it's not as simple as, oh, I go in and get the prayers and then I just go back to my nine to five. It's a struggle during the week. I asked Adam, as I do all my guests, how they deal with skeptics. Uh, I don't even think about it. I'm, I, I really couldn't care less. I'm doing the job that I've been appointed to do. You know, I, I have a master's in adult clinical psychology and have worked with medical professionals at various levels and medical professionals that are on the teams of exorcists, you know, professors of medicine, other things. Once you've been exposed to this, it's not like, oh, I can convince myself, oh, I didn't, you know, I got myself worked up. You know, there's nothing to it. Once you start seeing like concrete things that you can't explain away, it's a matter of that's just your new reality. And so you don't worry about that other people don't believe you. In fact, I think it's healthy to be skeptical and not believe in this stuff if you haven't had a brush with it. Now, from a Christian perspective, you would say, well, you'd hope you'd believe in it because it's your faith tells you so. And yes, to some degree, people do. But when they encounter it for real in the flesh, it takes on a whole new level of meaning. You know, one observation that I've made many times, people that come in that turn out to be possessed and they start getting liberated. And as they're coming towards the end or when they're freed, they all say the same thing. I had no idea. Nobody ever told me that this was real. I'm going to tell the world. I've got to warn everybody. They all say the same thing. And they're all surprised that it's real when it affects them. You know, that they, they say, like, I was just going through my life and I thought it was, you know, get a job and have kids and the white picket fence and then you're done. And their whole life gets turned upside down by this. And then they, they all say, I'm going to go out and tell everybody. But people aren't receptive until they've had a brush with the spiritual, with the supernatural, or the preternatural in this case. So you can't really worry about skeptics. Like, we're not here to convince you that things are real. That's not my job. I'm here to answer questions if I've got time to, to try to help you and share 
a tradition that has 2000 years of experience of dealing with these creatures pretty successfully and that most world religions, when they come across hardcore cases, they end up referring them to the Catholic church because the Catholic church just has a reputation of being able to deal with these things. So yeah, basically I, I understand if you're skeptical, I think that's reasonable, but we're more here for the people that are in trouble, I would say. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Adam and appreciated his matter-of-factness. This is his truth. He isn't going to force anyone to live one way or another. Which is why it really made me pause when he mentioned that things like ghost hunting and talking to spirits, the things I do for a living, leave you vulnerable to possession. For the first time in years, I found myself getting a little worried that maybe I am being too flippant about the paranormal. He did, after all, have far more experience dealing with this than I do. But then I reflected on our entire conversation, and I realized that numerous times Adam explained the importance of having non-selfish motives. Are you asking ghosts to manifest on your camera so you can go viral? Do you want to sit in during an exorcism out of curiosity? What are your true intentions? I believe that as long as I'm ghost hunting with the intent to help any spirits or people suffering, and if I'm communicating with the spirits of my ancestors to show gratitude and respect, then I'll be fine. Intention is all that matters, whether you're a Catholic, a Christian, or a witch. If people want more information, I've got a website with a lot of free information on the website, religiousdemonology.com. I have a book, Hauntings, Possessions, and Exorcisms, that kind of covers everything that we've talked about here in a little more detail. And then if people are interested, I've got a book on miracles called The Catholic Guide to Miracles to kind of plug the positive side of the supernatural because it's, it's not all doom and gloom. And if you're into these kind of stories in September, I've got another book coming out, and that's a book of kind of case studies of possessions. They're there to teach lessons. It's not just a gory book of scary stories, but they're all there for a purpose, to illustrate things to avoid, you know, to stay safe. Thanks for joining me today. Stories with Sapphire will return for a brand new season in October. What are your experiences with demonic possession? Send me an email at storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash storieswithsapphire to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to youtube.com slash sapphiresandalo, where I post animated spooky stories and more. Salamat and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sandalo. Music written by Sapphire Sandalo. Special thanks to Adam Bly. For more information on this episode, visit storieswithsapphire.com. 